and you are tuned in to KWF. Oh, KWTF. Oh, almost. I almost had it, folks. Almost. You are tuned in to KWTF 88.1 FM, Bodega Bay, and streaming live around the world on KWTF.net. I'm in a dream state. Can you tell? Do you know where I am? Do you know where I'm going? I've got a special guest tonight, and we are going to take a journey to all things Twin Peaks, which really is impossible when you think about it. So we'll only touch the surface, touch the top of that dark water, stare into the abyss, and think, what does it all mean? Can I have a donut? glad you joined us tonight today wherever you are whatever time it is whatever the weather's like outside and I'm so glad that my very special guest is here with me today why don't you introduce yourself sir well my name is Jeffrey Kine and I do want to make it clear up front that I'm not coming on as any kind of Twin Peaks expert or scholar or God anything like forbid. that. God forbid. No, I'm an ordinary fan. I know people, you know, <laughs> Twin Peaks can be a very tender place in people's hearts. So I'm not coming on as uh, any kind of authority. 
But I have to say, of all the people in my life, and I know a lot of Twin Peaks fans, you are the biggest and the smartest that I know. Well, I, I don't know about that, but I've, you know, Twin Peaks, and the reason I'm here is because Twin Peaks has really stood up to, you know, a lot of years, you know, 20 years for me of pretty deep thought and feeling into and getting a lot of juice out of, and it's clearly still resonant resonant enough today that we're actually now seeing a reboot that's going to be launching in 2017. Incredibly exciting and kind of... And you broke the news that it's moved out to 2017 now. Right. And initially it's slated for 2016, pushed out to 2017, although I think partly because the number of episodes got doubled. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have a lot, a lot to look forward to. Um, so there was really something there, and it's something that has profoundly affected the lives of a lot of people I know, including myself. And I think that's why we're doing this show, because it's both affected us. It's a place where we've connected, and so you know we can we can explore that and and uh, see what kind of depths there are to plumb in the Twin Peaks universe. So many depths, mm-hmm. so many plums to plum. Mm-hmm. And so many cherries to pie. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I. It's so hard to explain why. Uh, Twin Peaks was so meaningful to me. Um, but I think it came in a time in my life, we were talking, it's 25 years ago, 1990, when it began. And you watched it while it was on the air? I did. I did. Not entirely because I was a freshman in college, and so I wasn't always near a TV at the right time to watch it. Um, so I actually watched it out of order very confusing, but still um, still connected to everything that was happening on the show and then eventually got to watch the entire thing in order. Um, there's, there's a quirkiness and a darkness that uh, just resonates completely with my soul mm-hmm. and uh, continues to 25 years later. It's still completely watchable and completely powerful yeah yeah i mean i imagine just that intro music alone we played a few minutes ago sort of brought back a, oh yeah a lovely wonderful cozy uneasiness yeah. for <laughs> anyone who heard it who's watched the show and if you haven't i do want to give kind of a spoiler alert up front i think the way we're going to have an interesting conversation here is if we kind of go wherever we want to go yeah and so if twin peaks is one of those things that's like oh i've been meaning to watch that this might be a good time to hit pause on uh, spilling rubies. Mm-hmm. We'll and, wait for you. Well, yeah, and you know, thirty hours later, you know, <laughs> make a nice hot cup of joe, get on Netflix, and thirty hours later, come back and and you'll get some some more juice out of this podcast than you did before. You'll be a changed human. Yeah, but if you don't, if Twin Peaks isn't something that you you know really planned to do, then you know, stay along for the ride, and you know, and and maybe this uh our conversation will inspire you to to check it out i think it can only help any guides that can speak to what's uh happening on this show i think can be helpful because there are some dense thickets of a forest that are hard to navigate when you're brand new to the world yeah so jeffrey's also a musician and has a great ear for sound and uh mixing sounds and finding sounds and uh 
So he's brought a whole menagerie of um, music and clips to share with us, mm-hmm. which I'm so excited to share with you. Um, so what? Where should we? Where should we begin, or where should our, we take our next step towards? Um, well, I actually have a bit of music playing right now. This is uh, the Red Room music. And, you know, I'll just say, as a sound guy, the sound design and music for Twin Peaks is one thing that resonated with me profoundly. Because um, the, the attention to detail and really the beauty in the music is extraordinary, and it creates this whole mood. Um, which, if you know David Lynch, who's the co-writer and director of some of the episodes, is very much his his deal. He's kind of a, a shamanic director. Mm-hmm. Um, and his relationship with Angelo Badalamenti, the composer, really served to create this mood that you'll come to know and love when you, when you see the series. And this is the music for the Red Room, which is the, the kind of ultimate non-place and the really the surreal environment which imprinted Twin Peaks into the minds of viewers, you know, in 1990-91 when television was a fairly conservative place, you know, that was the era of Cheers and Dynasty and <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's, I think it's easy to underestimate that, you know, today we're pretty used to television series that have really complex storylines and these kind of, kind of avant-garde elements. And that didn't really exist in 1990-91. Television, or serial television, was kind of encapsulated episodes, drama resolution, done, move on. Right. Twin Peaks had very complex writing. um, Characters double-crossing, triple-crossing each other. And some really... Some really challenging aspects that resonated in the collective consciousness at that time. And the reason, I mean, that's kind of a grand statement. The reason I say that is because I actually looked at some figures before coming in here to do the show. And the Twin Peaks pilot was watched by 34 million people. Wow. I don't know, that number didn't mean anything to me at first, but then I looked at some other numbers and like Game of Thrones, which we think of as a pretty, you know, hot TV series right now. So far, the peak viewership is 8 million people. Mm, wow. Now that doesn't take into account pirating and things that didn't exist in the <laughs> 90s. But even the most watched show of the 2013-2014 season, which I think was Big Bang Theory, was only 23 million. And that n- number has even more resonance because now we can watch anything, anytime, whenever we want. And back then it was, people had to stop, take the time, sit down, watch it. You know, it wasn't... People made a commitment to watch the entire pilot together. Yeah. Sit through all the commercials, things that people don't, wouldn't have the patience or attention span to do now. Yeah. Your favorite television show was the evening event and families got together and watched these, you know, watched their show. And so for 34 million people to be taking this in at the same time, I think is a, you know, it's a pretty big drop in the in the collective consciousness. And especially, you know, let's face it, the Twin Peaks storyline has a pretty substantial sexual component. 
and we can get, get into that later. I think it's interesting for us to talk about it. I'm a man, you're a woman. Um, Twin Peaks is going to mean slightly different things to us. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But dropping it into that context of 1990-91, especially with a character like Laura, you know, in a time which wasn't, you know, it just wasn't as woman-positive a culture as it mm-hmm. is now. Definitely. And I, I enjoy and love Twin Peaks, but I'd say the people in my life who I've noticed have gotten the most, you know, Twin Peaks has impacted their life the most, are the women mm. that I know. And they're actually the ones that introduced me to it. So, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear from you, you know, what it meant to you, especially as a, as a woman. That's fascinating. That's, that's a facet I hadn't thought about. Um, so I love that you brought that up. Um, I, uh, and then let's, it's like the soundtrack's tuning into me. (laughs) David's here now. Angelo's with us. Um, yeah, that Laura's character really, I mean, all the women actually in the show that I've, I've heard many arguments about, how the women are one-sided or two-dimensional, and I don't agree. I think that um, every female character in Twin Peaks' storyline has many facets, dark and light. And um, Laura's character specifically, um, well, see now in my head I'm blending Firewalk with me into everything. Um, and I guess we, sh- we should say, just to set context, yes. the the basic story arc of Twin Peaks is a murder mystery. And yes. Laura is the murdered individual. Yes, her very first scene, right, is, is right. her dead. Right. Wrapped in plastic. Plastic. Um, and then we slowly, it slowly unfolds and shares the story, Laura's story, who she was, um, and becomes clear relatively early that she had these two sides so to speak the the good uh, meals on wheels help the mentally challenged help the shut-in side and she had the dark side where she um, did a lot of drugs and had a lot of sex and uh, had uh, advertisements in Flesh World magazine my favorite magazine (laughs) And that magazine exists like as an actual prop. Um, the man, the actor who plays Ben Horn, has a collection of props <laughs> that he took from the set. I, whether with David's permission or not, he's got them, and um, he posted them all. Uh, in the last couple of years, he's been sharing photos of it. Shoot, I should have written down that link, but you can probably find it. I think he even calls it Twin Peak Archives or something. Twin Peaks archives, but um, I found it incredibly empowering that this character, who, you know, and in the in the sort of vocabulary of the '90s was, you know, a slut and like bad, a bad girl. You know that she she is the one we're all focused on, and we're the one we're caring about, and her wild tale of survival through sex and drugs 
is a very true one and, and it resonated with me. Um, you know, we don't, in the 90s, we didn't see that story anywhere. Whereas, you know, I certainly didn't go to <laughs> the lengths that Laura did, but I certainly have friends who went into those worlds. I skirted those worlds. And David Lynch lets you skirt those worlds while watching the show. Um, you know, I kind of, I resonated with Donna a lot just because it was sort of like, whoa, like, here we go. I'm watching all this happen. I want to understand it. Um, but I think that, oh, it's just, it's so, it's so true. There's so much truth in it. And then when, when it's revealed, you know, that there's this dark figure, Bob, that has, you know, essentially been sexually molesting her for who knows how long, um, it all sort of dovetails into who Laura is in this perfect way. I mean, I, Firewalk With Me is one of the best films I've ever seen about incest, you know? I mean, and how to creatively process something so horrible, such a horrible experience. And, you know, this it's too hard to believe that your own father could do this to you. And so Bob is created, you know. But it's still a story of incest in the end. Right. Um, which is so real and, you know, common, unfortunately. Like, it, it, especially in a time, you know, I grew up in the 70s and, you know, what happens in someone's home happens in someone's home and everybody looks away, you know? It's like, ooh, something creepy's going on in that house. Nobody does anything about it, you Nobody know? Nobody even wants to look at it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, you don't mess with a man's house, you know, if he's, like, inappropriate with his daughter, you know, that's too bad for her, you know? I That story, I, more times than I can count, I've witnessed that, you know? So there's that truth-telling that, even though it's a fantasy world and very much a fantasy world, it's so true. Like everything that's happening is so true. Yeah, I think I think David Lynch would say, and I think folks have asked him and he has said, like in one word, in one word what is Twin Peaks about? And it's secrets. Mm-hmm, yes. And that realm of sexual impropriety is the big unacknowledged unlooked at secret for decades and centuries and and who knows how long um yeah and you know obviously not everyone listening to this show has been a victim of incest or has really taken the dark path down drugs and sex and all that but I might say that it's all touched, that it's touched every one of our lives in some way. If we haven't been that person, we've been the best friend, or we've, we know what's going on down the street. And yes, Twin Peaks does let you tune in to whatever level that, that world has reached out and touched you, and you've had to face those kinds of secrets that aren't being acknowledged, and the darkness that is there, simply because this thing isn't being looked at. Um, and that is, I think, why it's been able to affect so many people, is because it it touches that that 
closely held unacknowledged secret and shows both the the integration and redemption that can come from that and the horror that can come from that yeah yeah and the beauty that exists in the horror you know um and i'm not saying that incest is beautiful but what i'm saying is that even our darkest scariest most evil frightening places have a beautiful moment in it there's an energy that is powerful and strong and overwhelming like i think about david lynch's paintings and how he would you know put a piece of raw meat in the center of his canvas and let you know the maggots and the ants and whoever shows up to devour it collaborate with him on the painting and it's stinky and it's rotting and he has to like make his studio far away from his house um but there, there's beauty and decay. You know, when my cats bring in their rodents, I take photos of the carcasses because there is a beauty there. It's horrible and sad. And, you know, I don't want those animals to suffer, but it's also this place of natural death and decay. Yeah, it's the art of life. It's the art of life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he, that's just something that in all of his work and David Lynch's work, it's, it's the dark and the light are there together and he knows you can't have one without the other you can't define darkness without light and you can't define light without darkness we wouldn't understand what we were looking at or feeling um yeah he's he's very much said that i mean that's you don't have to agree with it but that's very much true for him it's why i referred to him as a shamanic yeah yeah say more about that i i agree and i but i want to hear your words around that yeah well for david it's it's his experience that our trip in life, like what we're doing here, is to gain divine mind through the knowledge and experience of combined opposites. That this realm is one of duality and opposites. And we are exploring that. And so it comes in two flavors, which we call dark and light. And that our capacity to embrace one is equivalent to our capacity to embrace the other. They go together. So you kind of imagine yourself standing in the middle of the direct light spectrum and you extend your arms out and you can embrace as much darkness as you embrace light. Um, Lynch, either because of his peculiarities or preferences or whatever, he kind of goes for the dark first. Maybe there's more, that's sort of a better leverage point, but he really embraces that darkness because it allows greater embrace of the light as well um, and that's just what he's observed to be true and you know it may or not be ultimately true but it's it's true enough um, and that that's you know spiritual growth for lack of better words yeah yeah definitely and his um, dedication to transcendental meditation too mm-hmm. I think really um, is kind of always sort of humming beneath the surface of what he creates of this um he's grounded in this spiritual practice so that he can go as far as his arms can spread and further you know there's the center is there and i feel like that center whatever it is for you it doesn't have to be meditation it can be anything if it grounds and centers you in your spirit or your energy 
I think we have to have that to fully embrace the dark and the light. Yeah, and that center point is a place of power. It's not sort yeah. of mealy-mush neutrality. Right. It's actually the, the fulcrum power point where you have sort of full uh, command of the darkness and full command of the light. Um, and darkness is illustrated in Twin Peaks a lot, and sometimes in very raw ways. And he's been criticized for not, for their kind of creating a sense of no redemption. The way I experience it is that through those dark elements, redemption is found or hinted at or coming. And by redemption, what do you mean? I mean integration. So let's look at Bob. Let's look at Bob. Let's look at Bob. You know, there's a lot one could say about Bob, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a scholar and I'm not an authority on this, but, you know, we can just sort of speculate about what Bob is. And again, just to set a bit of context, Bob in this murder mystery is the murderer. And he's, um, Lynch has described him as an abstraction in human form. Mm. So he's not a person. I think it might be a mistake to say that he's a ghost or like the spirit of some specific person, but he's maybe what you could call a thought form or a kind of abstract entity with a purpose. The way Bob reads to me as a ki- is as a kind of disowned, instinctual yes. part of self. He's the shadow. He is the shadow. And again, if we're going back to the 90s or even back further into the 50s, which is when Lynch grew up, and I think when he got his sort of sexual imprinting, that disowned, instinctual, you know, part of self, which includes the sex drive, was a big source of problems. And the exploration of it, as illustrated in Twin Peaks, I think is a, if you really take it, is an integration journey for Mm. whoever chooses to take it. Might have been for Lynch himself, might have been for the actors in it. I've found it to be true for me and for the people I know who have watched it and whose lives it's impacted. That in, that watching the show helped you, the viewer, integrate. Yes, it helped me see things. Because Lynch, you know, as I've said, he operates very freely in abstractions. And it's important. This actually is going to make me want to play a clip. Good. Um, People accuse Lynch of, of basically being too abstract and being weird for weird's sake, and I think that's really unfair. It's important to paint in abstractions so that things don't become smaller than they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you can tune into them in whatever way is right for you. But there you have it. It clearly strikes a chord. And I've been able to see how Bob manifests in my own life Mm. you know Mm. I don't think there's a person walking around today who doesn't have some disowned instinctual part of self 
Definitely. And it can create big problems if left unseen. Um, so as a man, it's been very useful for me to be able to, you know, navigate puberty and navigate adolescence and see, okay, oh, I can see this. I can see what this is. I can see this going on. I can bring awareness to it and integrate it in a healthy way rather than letting it run amok and unchecked, which mm. is really, you know, what we what we see so much of in the show. Yeah. So there's... there's um a recognition of of your inner Bob mm-hmm. as you navigate navigated your sexual awakening and and your hormonal explosions of growing up and feeling all you know becoming an adult and how, what a whirlwind that is in the body and the mind. I think that yeah, Bob Bob is in all of us, you know. Right, and it doesn't make us terrible people. No. And even Bob, you know, Bob himself is innocent in the way a wild animal is innocent you know a wild animal will kill you right if it's in the wrong place or you're in the wrong place but it's just nature doing what it's doing it's just energy playing out right. it's a matter of having it in its right place bob in his wrong place will just destroy lives yes um but the energy or essence of it is totally innocent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it just is what it is yeah, there is a purity to his darkness. He he is the other. He has been othered so completely, so disowned um, that he is a wild animal. I think that's a good description of him. Um, I I often teach um, dream work, and I do dream theater, and I work a lot with nightmares and monsters uh, because people similar to Bob you know they have this dream with a monster dark figure and they don't want to own that figure and I just over and over and over and remind myself when I have my own nightmares that is me that is a part of me I created that character because I dreamt it it didn't come from anywhere else it came from me through my filter even if it came from you know a spirit realm or if you know if you're your dreaming goes into that realms it's still filtered through me and um you know i had a nightmare about um a terrorist that was just like torturing and flogging and like flaying women's bodies and like it was just a horror scene and the last thing i wanted to do when i woke up was say i'm not terrorist i am capable of absolutely everything that that man did in my dream and it was horrible to sit with that feeling but incredibly empowering when I could finally settle into, yeah, I am capable of that. If driven to the right dark place and I'm fighting for something I believe in and I'm, you know, it's right there. I'll go flay somebody if I need to. And that's a horrible, scary thing to realize. But now Bob isn't running amok, you know, outside in the dark raping people. He's here at home and I've got an eye on him. And I say, I know what you're up to. You're a part of me. I see you. But we're not going to flay anybody today. (laughs) But it's an incredible power of human nature that that's there should you ever need it. You know, God forbid you ever would. (laughs) There it is. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough, especially now in this 
morality police state we live in, you know, where nobody is allowed to say the wrong thing or, you know, show any kind of ugly side or dark side or violent side. And it's, we're getting further and further away from the truth. We're getting further and further away from that rooted place. <laughs> and now we're honky tonking. <laughs> Well, really, we just need to do some line dancing yeah. with Bob. Well, I think I think this this, <laughs> this brings in a good counterpoint. Um, so, Bob, one masculine archetype to talk about. Another one is Cooper. So let's bring in Coop. let's bring in the Cooper. And uh, let me say, as a man, one of the things I appreciated most about Twin Peaks is Cooper, who's our hero of the show, and is just an absolutely extraordinary male character that I've never seen the equal of in television. Like I was truly still am truly inspired by Cooper as a person. I think I have adopted several of his mannerisms over time. Um, and just a really extraordinary thing to see and take in. I actually have a clip of Cooper here. It's, it's yeah. Let's, let's introduce ourselves yeah. to Coop. Yeah. It's the way he's introduced on the show. So it's the first thing anybody in the world ever sees or hears from Agent Cooper. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th, entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. Never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day. Weatherman said rain. You get paid that kind of money for being wrong 60% of the time. It'd be working. The mileage is 79,345. Gauges on reserve. Riding on fumes here. I got to tank up when I get into town. Remind me to tell you how much that is. Lunch was. Uh, $6.31 at the Lamplighter Inn. That's on Highway 2 near Lewis Fork. That was a tuna fish sandwich on whole wheat, slice of cherry pie, and a cup of coffee. Damn good food. And Diane, if you ever get up this way, that cherry pie is worth a stop. Okay. Looks like I'll be meeting up with the uh, Sheriff Harry S. Truman. Shouldn't be too hard to remember that. He'll be at the Calhoun Memorial Hospital. I guess we're gonna go up to intensive care and take a look at that girl that crawled down the railroad tracks off the mountain. When I finish here, I'll be checking into a motel. I'm sure the sheriff will be able to recommend a clean place, reasonably priced. That's what I need, a clean place, reasonably priced. Oh, Diane, I almost forgot. Got to find out what kind of trees these are. They're really something. Oh, Agent Dale, we love you so much. I think that Agent Dale Cooper would be a great supporter of KWTF. What do you think, Jeffrey? I think he absolutely would. <laughs> I think he'd say it's damn fine. He'd say it's damn fine, and he'd say, "Why don't you? Why aren't you a member?" He'd say, "You get it. You get all these amazing shows for free, and you're not a member." Diane, sign me up. It's a clean place, reasonably priced. That's right. Really reasonably priced. You can do $5 a month, 
you can do $10 a month. That's what I do. It's so easy. Just go to kwtf.net, click on that donate button, and uh, sign up. Be a monthly member. It comes out of your checking account or on your credit card or however you want it. And it just happens every month. You don't have to think about it. And then it just, you see it in your little online banking and you're like, damn, damn, I'm a good person. Look at me supporting KWTF. Look at me supporting community radio. Look at me supporting eclectic, odd shows like this one. You'll be glad you did. There are clues everywhere, all around us. But the puzzle maker is clever. The clues, although surrounding us, are somehow mistaken for something else. And the something else, the wrong interpretation of the clues, we call our world. Our world is a magical smokescreen. How should we interpret the happy song of the meadowlark or the robust flavor of a wild strawberry? Whoops. <laughs> I'm just edit that out. Oh, the log lady. Got another absolutely spectacular character. Totally amazing. Yeah. She, she's another one that, um, that the, the quirky visionary in the woods, you know, is not often a woman, but she is. And she, you know, is the crazy lady. So again, another archetype that is familiar and yet has been shifted ever so slightly into this place of beauty and magic and strangeness. There's definitely, even Dale's pretty baffled by her most of the time, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but she 
literally carries a piece of the forest with her at all times. Like she is more connected to the forest, to the wildness, to the darkness than anybody else besides Bob, really. Mm. And she's a survivor of so much death and fire and uh, losing her love and never quite finding herself again once she lost her love. She had her brush with darkness. Um, and she is kind of a sentinel, kind of a sphinx in a way, asking questions, being a guard, being a gatekeeper of sorts. Not necessarily to a physical place, but a energetic spiritual place yeah she's a supernatural agent yeah she is yeah you know and became so through a brush with death or horror or trauma mm-hmm. and yeah it gives all of us permission to be wise at the expense of social niceties yeah. and <laughs> you know fitting in yeah which is which is important you know for any of us who have <laughs> quirks or unusual <laughs> capacities that's uh yeah a powerful, a powerful bit of validation to have and that's a power you know she embraced that darkness she did not create a bob she took it inside herself and that means people don't understand her and she seems weird and crazy and um but she's she held firm she held firm like the trees that she loves and uh weathered the storm as best she could and is now there to help others but in a kind of trickster way she's she holds that dark and light place inside of herself so she's not always helpful but she's um always ready to share some words Mm -hmm. share some uh ideas share some questions and the clip we just listened to she was basically talking about Oh my goodness. Excuse me. There's a mystery train that (laughs) just flew through the studio. (laughs) Train, train. That's a different show. (laughs) But it's 16 boxcars long, Jeffrey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mystery is a different thing than darkness. Right. It's the kind that we've been talking about in the first part of the show. And, you know, mystery is... You know, David Lynch finds mystery absolutely thrilling. Like the fact that mystery exists, or more specifically, the fact that there are things there in reality beyond what we can see, that there's more to things than meets the eye at first glance, is absolutely the ultimate thrill. Like it's what makes life worth living basically. Yes. Like yes. it's it's why it's essentially why we're here. And we all love the feeling of the desire to know. And that feeling, like the desire to know and the desire to dive into the mystery is kind of the feeling of life. And actually I have another clip of uh Mark Frost and David Lynch, who are the two creators of the show. Oh great. Kind of talking about that and why it's important. So let me let me roll that. We took the meeting and told them about this strange town in the Northwest and a murder that happens and 
I remember David said something about, and there's the wind in the trees, and he moved his hands a certain way, and they all kind of leaned forward, and I kind of knew we had them. Mark Frost and I, you know, did that. Mm -hmm. And Mark Frost is at least 50% of it. Mm -hmm. And I loved working with Mark, and um, we had a thing going, complimenting one another, and the thing would flow. And uh, so it was a very special experience. And like I say, it wanted to be, it wanted to be. It had its thing, mm -hmm. it lived, and yeah. we went, you know, yeah. but now um, it, did, it, did a lot of, it did a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Did a lot of things. Did a lot we of made a world. Influenced, yeah. influenced, the influence is still being felt mm -hmm. from conversations I have. So it's a great um, thing to have the pilot and the first season and the second season all together, the whole story. Yeah. And it's very, very good. The thing that kills me is that the murder of Laura Palmer was never supposed to be solved. Really? And the reason is um, that is um, this beautiful little goose. Mm -hmm. And the little goose is laying golden eggs. Mm -hmm. And why would you kill this little goose? <laughs> it's unreal. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a huge sadness. A huge sadness. And an absurdity that that ever happened. Was that just pressure? Pressure. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the pressure really, if you translate that pressure, is that a need to know. Mm -hmm. And that need to know is what draws, you know, you in. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's what happened. How do you really feel about it? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing. But yeah. um, uh, there, was, there was room for so many other, you know, mysteries. But that mystery was sacred and it held the other ones. It was the tree, and the other ones were mm -hmm. the branches. Yeah. And, and you know, it's just, um, uh, like I said, a sadness. Yeah. Yeah, those core mysteries, you can't mess with them. No. Oh, hmm. there's so much there. There's so much to unpack. I know. And here we've been spending all this time talking about, you know, Laura's killer and all the, the facts of the murder as it got revealed. But David never really wanted that to begin with. Right, right. Which is fascinating. I mean, he's talking about the mystery, as you said, the, the secrets needed to stay. Some some secrets needed to stay secret. and mm. uh, But we, you know, the, the, the whole sort of consciousness of the time wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer like what is the answer to the riddle and it sounds like he's saying that there there is no answer there there's no there's no way to tie it up in a bow like that 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 darkness that evil if you want to use that word it, it will forever be creeping behind the trees and peeking up above the foot of your bed. Right. 
the he's saying that the idea that we can somehow get to a place where everything is revealed and settled is an illusion. It's the process of investigating the mystery that brings out more and more of sort of the juice of existence. And I think he thought of it in the context of the of the show as the the murder of Laura Palmer was what brought all of the other characters together unveiling their own stuff um you know bringing them closer um making the things happen that needed to happen it was a catalyst for the life of everyone else in in the right. town right um and we can certainly see how that's the case you know in our own lives when tragedies occur they're incredible catalysts for yeah. our own integration and for you know things that may be kind of destructive on the surface of life, but they take us to the places we need to go. Right. If our lives don't get shaken up, um, they can atrophy. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting to watch how it played out in the, in the life of Twin Peaks itself. There was this incredible, I mean, it was like front page news. It was like, you know, Twin Peaks was on the cover of Rolling Stone. It was like, who killed Laura Palmer, I think was on Time or mm-hmm. something like that. Like, people absolutely had to know who it was, thinking that knowing would be somehow rewarding and enhance their enjoyment of it, but it actually killed the show. Right. Like, once once the killer was revealed, people lost interest. So clearly that that knowing or that attempt at resolution is not where it's at. So moving forwards, what do you think we will see and experience in the coming new season in 2017? It's a great question. And, you know, I really don't know. (laughs) And uh, it's really kind of daunting to think about. It is daunting to think about. Yeah. And it's really Mark's and David's thing. And so I'm afraid to speculate. You know, I know we'll see some of the original actors. I know we'll see some new actors. Obviously, the original actors, I don't know whether they'll be reprising their old parts. Of course, many of the key actors are dead now. Right, right. Um, you know, the show came from a a, a place in the, the soulscape of David and Mark. And so... The whole reason it's continuing is because they're going back to that place and seeing what's coming out. And I'm confident that's very much the way Lynch works. He's not hes not a psychological writer-director in the sense of, like, what would logically happen next in the town of Twin Peaks. Right. But finding the, you know, the soulscape of the place and seeing what visions come and what wants to play out. And it'll be... You know, the world now is a very different place than it was in 1990, and I think what we see will be correspondingly different, and I couldn't even begin to speculate. Yeah, that is really fascinating to think about, of how, you know, what what is the time frame? When will it be set? You know, uh, the, the actors who are coming, we assume, to reprise their role in some way are older. They look older. Um... Will they be older on the show? I mean, there's who knows what he will do. And I love his process. Um, 
what is that? He David Lynch published a book about creativity. It was Chasing the Big Fish. Big Fish. Yeah. Um, and I love the way he talked about his process of creativity and that he really, and he, he, I'm pretty sure he used the term the flow, um, which is elusive. It's kind of in, in one sense a misnomer because it seems like it's a flowing river that you can dive into at any time. And actually that is, um, something that he says, but, uh, it takes a lot of hard work and practice to be able to see the river and dip into it. Um, and a letting go of control. And I think for someone as um, visually specific as David Lynch is, it's very impressive to me how much he is willing to let go of control in creative moments. Um, Yeah, I mean, for David, ideas are are really, ideas are both precious and impersonal. Like Mm -hmm. I think he says in Chasing the Big Fish, all the ideas are there. They're in a realm of ideas and they come to you or you reach up and catch them or they come to you and they're not they're not yours but you have them for a moment and you can act on them or make them or you can let them run and explore themselves and see what happens and that's you know like I was saying earlier that the the thrill of mystery that's that's what makes the whole thing worth doing yes he's not that interested in psychological exploration he's interested in letting these ideas take you know have a mind of their own and play out because in doing so they'll they'll f- find their most meaningful expression mhm mhm right you know and you know i for bob i don't want to read too much into it but if you've seen the actor and you know what he looks like the way the way it came about he he's always correcting people when he's in telling the story, they were working in the Palmer House, and um, David was working on something, and he heard a woman's voice say, Frank, don't lock yourself in that room, meaning Laura's room. And David just thought of Frank Silva locked in Laura's room and had a, like, there was something there. And if you look at Frank Silva, he's a very wolfy, kind of instinctual-looking guy and there's something about the way he looks in that context that captured something kind of a feral he's kind of a feral looking guy and so it just it it fit an idea and it organically evolved into what it did and it totally spoke to the collective consciousness of the time and onward i think so it, it that story kind of as silly as it sounds, is really a testament to the power of that of that idea and the appreciation of the idea as its own impersonal thing that's just playing out. And I think any of us who have done art know a bit about what that's like. Yes, definitely. You know, you, you have your setup, you get yourself in your studio, you're ready to go, and you need the magic. Mm-hmm. You know, the magic comes you, you create a setting for it and it comes you know or it doesn't come or it doesn't. <laughs> right you know there, but if you try to do it if you say i'm gonna yeah. paint now and you just like it's not you know it 
that experience is not why you're there. That experience is not why you paint. You paint for the magic. Right, right. Yeah, sometimes the hard work has to be put in and just showing up, showing up, showing up. Um, You know, I think David Lynch, he definitely credits his spiritual meditation practice to helping him grab those fish a lot more easily. And I do think it's it's a muscle that gets stronger um, when you work it out. So when you are showing up and creating in that space over and over and over again, you can drop down into that space a lot more easily mm-hmm. um, than if you're just, you know, once every couple of months sitting down to your canvas, then it's a lot harder to grab those fish, I think. Please support KWTF. Go to kwtf.net and click on that donate button. And we're so glad that you're here and you're part of this. And I will see you next week.